The practice we are engaged in here is called Vipassana Insight Meditation. Um, We don't actually practice insight. Um, This is not something that it's possible to do. Our practice or style or form of practice is one that is directed towards cultivating an inner environment that is conducive to insight, conducive to understanding through calmness and through stillness, through focus, through balance. The consciousness is more perceptible. Our inner world is more perceptible and accessible to us. And in seeing clearly both into our inner world And our relationship to every moment, there is the possibility of the emergence of understanding, of insight. And I think it is helpful also to demystify the word insight a little bit. Some uh, people find it a rather curious word or a curious process. Um, even somewhat embarrassing, you know, what does an insight look like? Um, how, what kind of insights am I supposed to be having? How will I even know if I've had an insight? Are there, you know, right or better insights than other insights? Um, and the very, you know, the very way in which insight may emerge. Now, it is true that at times in our practice, there is a moments which can be quite startlingly clear in terms of understanding. That you know, suddenly there emerges some sense of revelation or comprehension, which is very clearly formed in the moment, which very much stands out as an insight. There are very many more times when the process of insight does not happen in this way, but that almost on a cellular level there is a qualitative change in our relationship to ourselves in the moment, in our way of seeing, our way of understanding, that there is a very gentle and subtle turning away from pathways of holding or clinging or belief systems and arresting more in a sense of clarity and non-dwelling and non-holding, a different perception of ourselves in the moment. This too is a process of insight. Sometimes that process happens in a way that we actually at times don't even know that something has changed until we go into a situation which has previously been charged or difficult or an area of struggle and suddenly discover that our relationship has radically altered, that this is no longer an area of charge for us. There are three areas of insight that are worth considering. One area of insight or understanding is in the area of our personal story. It is inevitable as we sit that what really 
comes most clearly into focus in the beginning of practice at least are the dynamics of our personal story, our memories and images, our histories, our plans, our wants, our likes, our dislikes, our patterns of judgment or resistance or departure. We become very, very clear or much clearer about what actually moves us, what actually makes us into who we think we are in this moment. Um, that personal story is very, very predominant. You know, when you think in practice, when you in the beginnings of retreats, you know, where you find the most struggle or resistance, it is usually to do with the dynamics of our own feelings or thoughts or bodies. There is clearly a need for insight and understanding in our personal story. This is what we live with. It forms and shapes all of our lives in every relationship. There is a need for a deep understanding to free us of areas of imprisonment or entanglement or limited belief systems. Sometimes as we sit with our personal story, we find ourselves welcoming it. At other times, we find it very unwelcome. The understanding of our personal story is necessary both for <coughs> disentanglement and the insight is also necessary for healing. But healing in the context of this practice is not taking place in the form of a mission in the sense of selecting something, some area of struggle within our personal story or history, and isolating that area of struggle and saying, oh, I need to heal this. You know, that kind of healing is often, or that perspective on healing is often not different than actually the desire to find a solution. The context of healing in this practice is much more one of exploring and nurturing the qualities of heart and mind that actually allow for healing. Fostering and nurturing the kindness of attention, the willingness to welcome the acceptance, the letting go of resistance, the compassion, the generosity, the forgiveness. This is all of what this practice is concerned with nurturing being attentive in a balanced way, in a soft and gentle way, is actually learning to heal. It is bringing the qualities of healing into this moment that demands no resolution, no particular solution, um, no image of what that should turn into. Sometimes, of course, you know, we do find ourselves being more you know, as we are introduced to our personal story more and more deeply on a retreat, at times we find ourselves tempted to isolate areas within our personal story, to label them as a problem, an issue, something I have to work on. We need to be very careful with this. We need to be extraordinarily careful with this. Because sometimes that isolating and 
focusing on in a way of attention which is really um, so exclusive, so exclusive, is actually very much closing down to a wider sense of reality and actually giving too much attention to the contents of our experience rather than to our relationship to it. And this we do need to be extraordinarily careful of. You know, sometimes there are patterns that arise of, of fears or angers or resistances and we think, oh, well, the only way this will ever end is if I find the cause or find the, the source. Many times we know the causes. I mean, sometimes knowing why things are present is helpful for clear comprehension. But many times we know the causes of struggles in our life and knowing those causes does not make an iota of difference. Does not make an iota of difference in the sense of what power those struggles actually have in the moment. Sometimes the isolating of something as being a problem is a prelude to dwelling and to obsession. Healing is about letting go of our belief systems. Healing is not about working from the past to the present, working out the past in any way so that we can arrive at a perfect place in the present. Healing is about healing the present in which in very organically and, and intrinsically heals the past. If we no longer define ourselves in this moment, by that which has already gone by, then we have healed the past. We are grounded and resting in that which is present. Although there is clearly a need for understanding of our personal story, another name for the personal story could also be the never-ending story. <laughs> as long as there is in any way holding or clinging, the personal story is always going to give us something new, something new to be worked on or to be let go of or to be understood. There is a real balance to find here about meeting what is present very clearly, very lovingly, very gently. And yet really also in that same moment being aware the quality of our relationship, the quality of our attentiveness, and how much we might be tempted to become lost in contents which are never-ending. Another area of insight which is important is what we might call an understanding of the universal story, the nature of life, the rhythms of life, the truth of life's rhythms which are not personal just to us, but which apply and live within all beings, within all of life. Part of that, uh, and areas of that understanding or that insight is really understanding the nature of change, of impermanence, understanding the nature of unsatisfactoriness, understanding the emptiness of self. It is really a way of coming to understand the very rhythms of all of these stories, the process of all of these stories. It, is a very, it can be a focus and a direction of practice which truly helps us to hold all stories within a light of understanding and balance. 
And it is not that we know, you know, that there is a linear movement that we should first understand our personal story and then move over to understanding more the dharmic story, the dharma story, the nature of change, the nature of emptiness of self, the nature of suffering. By actually bringing this perspective into the moment, into how we see the moment, there is a great power in actually dissolving entanglement. And sometimes it is helpful when we find ourselves lost in contents, you know, or lost in the personal story, simply to sidestep and to really have the intention in our sitting, in our walking, to focus upon change, upon beginnings and endings, upon the way in which all of these moments are fleeting, to be not stuck anywhere. Sometimes it is helpful just to sidestep if we're lost and to really have that intention to see what is the nature of unsatisfactoriness. It is holding, it is being lost, it is clinging, this is the nature of unsatisfactoriness. To see that so clearly and to so deeply brings a wholeheartedness in letting go. To sidestep in the process to sidestep in the practice and to have the intention just to see and to really clearly perceive the, the arising and passing of the notion of self in the thinker, in the, in, in the wanter, in the hater, in the lover, to see this appearance of self arising and passing on a moment-to-moment level, to see how it's so conditioned, so conditioned by whatever it is dancing with in the moment by whatever has been taken hold of. To see that so clearly and to so deeply just dissolves those belief systems. And it is, it is important to do that sidestepping. It is important to do that sidestepping of comprehending process, of comprehending the dharma of life, the dharma of our own story, so that we are not here trying to fix ourselves you know, we are practicing to be free. That is why we practice. Not to fix ourselves, not to have a better self. We practice in order to be free. The third area of insight, which is very much spoken of in this tradition, it, it could almost be called the timeless story. And that is really understanding the way in which all of that which we do in meditation is actually dedicated to liberation, dedicated to being free, of understanding a way of being in which we are not defined by anything which is conditioned, not defined by anything which is limited, and so are without limitation. It is the understanding of that which is most true, an unconditioned understanding, all, and you can't force that insight. You can't force any insight. You know, you can't struggle for an insight. But really understanding that all that we do in meditation is devoted to and dedicated to cultivating an environment of stillness inwardly, an environment of listening inwardly, an unmoving, unshakable awareness which holds all of these stories. And in that inner stillness, there is the possibility of very profound and very liberating insight. And everything we do when we are with the breath, when we are with walking, when we cultivate a relationship of wholeheartedness to this moment, we are in that moment cultivating letting go. We are in that moment cultivating stillness of being.
And it's in that stillness that we are touched. You know, it's really in that stillness that we can ta- be touched by the moment and touched by understanding. In the practice today, just continuing just to rest so gently within the breath. Really knowing that in resting gently within the breath, there is an integration of body, of mind, of heart, and of this moment. That is where they meet, by resting our attention gently, just in one moment at a time, one breath at a time. Bringing an equality of attentiveness, you know, when our attention is drawn to thoughts, is drawn to feelings, is drawn to sensations, bringing an equality of attentiveness, that there is not one thing that is more special than another. There is not one area that is deserving of more attention than another. Bringing that same soft and gentle attentiveness to be clearly comprehending where we are, knowing where we are, returning in the next moment to the next breath. Letting our breath be our way of perceiving what is in this moment. Letting our breath be our way of perceiving when our attention departs from the breathing, of knowing where we are. In the beginning of the sitting, again, just calmly and gently settling into your posture. Finding balance and steadiness within your body. Finding balance and steadiness within your attention. making a home within the attentiveness, within the seeing of this moment. The Buddha said that this path, meaning this path of attentiveness, this path of mindfulness, goes in one direction and in one direction only. And this direction is towards the purification of beings, towards the overcoming of sorrow and despair, towards
towards the disappearance of pain and of grief, towards the attainment of truth, towards the realization of liberation. Mindfulness is being present with whatever our experience is. It can only happen in the present moment. It can't happen outside of the present moment because it's present moment attentiveness. Free from clinging. Free from pushing away. Free from identification with whatever it is that's occurring. It's a sense of knowingness, a sense of connection, a sense of contact with our experience. With mindfulness, we're present with the essence of life. We're not so much object-bound or situation-bound or person-bound. We're present in an extraordinarily expansive and spacious way, not glommed onto the various experiences that occur, which, upon close examination, we see to be always disappointingly temporary, always changing. The best of experiences change. The worst of experiences change. And so mindfulness is being present with life itself rather than defining ourselves through the various experiences that we have or thinking that any one experience is going to be the one that will last. Mindfulness doesn't care if an experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral because mindfulness is unbiased and unprejudiced This is quite different than ordinary attention because in ordinary attention, we block out and decide what we're going to attend to. We pick out what we think of as important and what we think of as important has everything to do with our conditioning, has everything to do with our past. Mindfulness is free from the past. Every time we remember to be mindful, there is freedom from the past. It's non-manipulative. Its purpose is not to serve our personal desires. With mindfulness, the intention is not to try and control, but actually to try and understand. This is the function of mindfulness. Mindfulness doesn't control. It allows us to be present with things so that we can understand how things actually are. In not blocking out aspects of our experience, in opening to whatever it is that is happening, in mindfulness not being manipulative or serving personal desires, Mindfulness serves life. Mindfulness does not serve the self. Mindfulness serves life.
being aware, awake, without interpretation, without description. Mindfulness is non-conceptual. One can be mindful of a concept, but this is different than being lost in a concept. Mindfulness is loving and open-hearted. It's really the presence of God because it's presence with life, not presence with the limited sense we may have of ourselves. So it's as expansive as, as can be. Without adding to our experience, without subtracting from our experience, without elaborating on our experience, without negating our experience. Mindfulness is an open-hearted attentiveness to whatever it is that's occurring. As we practice, when we begin to practice, we do pick and choose what we want to be mindful of, what we do want to be attentive of. And as the practice deepens, as we see more and more, there is more inclusiveness in what we want to be mindful of. In other words, less choice, less ideas about when we'll choose to be attentive and when we'll choose not to be. The joy in practice comes from not choosing, actually, not thinking that we have a choice, not assuming that we have a choice. The joy of practice is in being awake and aware and mindful, whatever the experience may be. So we find ourselves less naturally, less attached to wanting pleasurable experiences to last, less naturally attached to wanting unpleasant experiences to leave very quickly. And we find ourselves more awake, more aware in the midst of that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. This happens in a totally natural way, this non-attachment. And so we begin very slowly, very gradually, to touch all of our experiences with mindfulness. Whatever we think is exempt from mindfulness is that which controls us. Whatever we think is not important to be mindful of, and one can notice in one's mind in one's heart, in one's experience. Yes, this is important to be mindful of. I need to work on this particular aspect of myself, perhaps. This is not important to be mindful of. It doesn't really matter if I'm mindful of this. It's a, a trivial thought, or uh, yeah, it's not important. But what's so important in practice is the recognition that whatever we are not mindful of is what is going to rule us in some way. That is what is going to have center stage in our lives, is that which we think is not important to be mindful of. So in our practice, there can be this kind of investigation. You know, it's it's conditioned in that we're mindful of this, we're mindful of that, but absolutely no possibility of being mindful of, of doubt. You know, no possibility of being aware of insecurity or aware of boredom, because that's how life is. So why would one be aware of it if that's how things are? And this is what rules us if we're not aware. 
And so more and more this open-hearted inclusiveness towards not just bits of our experience, not what we choose to be with, but so open-hearted that we can allow all of life to reveal itself. Each moment of mindfulness deconditions the mind. Every moment that we remember to be mindful, we're not continuing in the old habits. We're not continuing in the old patterns. It really cuts <coughs> habit away. So every moment that we remember to be mindful, the heart, the mind, is freeing itself. And again, this happens in a natural way. The mind is left in its natural state, in its natural luminosity. And we see things clearly as they are. Another aspect of practice to be aware of throughout the day today is this idea of what's called papancha. I love this word, it's a Pali word, papancha. And it means proliferation. Sometimes in Cambridge, people come to me and they say, I've been papancha-ing a lot today, (laughs) kind of bringing the Pali and the English together. (laughs) I've been papancha-ing all day today. But it means uh, the mind getting carried away. We all know what this means. Uh, The mind uh, going off on its own and uh, associating. One hears a sound and is not quite aware that a sound is happening. And then perhaps memory comes in, and one is completely gone in a memory that initially was instigated by that sound. But there is this proliferation of mind because we're not picking up on the original sound that began the whole process. And so just simply to be aware um, of when we find ourselves kind of high and dry, And we started in one place, and then maybe the journey was quite pleasant, and so we went along with it. And then we find ourselves where we're not sure that we actually want to be. You know, perhaps when we've been lost in a lot of proliferation, we we may discover, we may see that there's some degree of tiredness, of exhaustion that is occurring. And it's really simply because we've left ourselves We've left the moment, and we're lost in proliferation. The mind has taken off on its own. And, you know, who knows what can happen when the mind takes off on its own? (laughs) This is always bad news. (laughs) One has to really, you know, take care of the mind the way one would take care of a child with that degree of care and caution as well. Of course, not being afraid of our own minds, but as well recognizing that the mind really uh, doesn't know much on its own. And one has to very gradually train it to stay here, to be present, to be with things as they are. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now. The meditator dwells in stability and freedom. Do not pursue the past. 
Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the meditator dwells in stability and freedom. Okay, so let's move into the sitting. A relaxed and upright posture. Allowing mindfulness to infuse the body. Allowing mindfulness to infuse the breath. (coughs) We can let go we can let go into this in-breath. We can let go into this out-breath. We can have the trust that the breath will continue to occur right here and now as we're aware of it. So no need to control or manipulate or change things. but to inhabit the breathing, to inhabit one's body. Mind moves away, inhabiting wherever you find yourself to be. If it's a thought, knowing that a thought is occurring in the present moment. If it's a feeling, knowing that a feeling is occurring in the present moment. If it's a sound, knowing that a sound is occurring in the present moment. And then, without judgment or condemnation, not making it into a problem, once again inhabiting the body, once again inhabiting the breath. Noticing, is it an in-breath or an out-breath that one is engaged in right now? In uh, the Buddhist tradition, there are (coughs) countless different, well, not countless, but a number of different styles of meditative practice. 
And it is not that one style is better or worse than another, but that different styles of practice, different uh, forms of practice, actually are ways of either highlighting different aspects of understanding or opening different doorways in consciousness. Um, Metta practice really has, in some ways, a different aspiration than Vipassana practice. Samatha practice or concentration practice produces a very uh, different effect than Metta practice, for example. These different styles, they are, of course, really held together by the central theme of in that they are all very dedicated to waking up. They are all very dedicated to seeing what is true. Anapanasati practice is the mindfulness of breathing. Some of you have asked about the ways in which the breath is used in the, in the practice we're doing here. Anapanasati practice is mindfulness of breathing. It is a practice which is really directed towards very much deepening uh, concentration and focus and samatha states. In Anapanasati practice, it is a practice of always bringing the attention back to the breath. It is a a practice where there is a certain amount of exclusivity. The intention is to be with the breath only, only, that no matter what else arises, one immediately simply becomes again absorbed into the breathing. Vipassana practice is different than Anapanasati practice. Vipassana practice, although it may use the breath as a way of connecting with the body, as an anchor of resting, an anchor of attentiveness, it doesn't have the intention to be exclusive. But rather, Vipassana practice is a way of directing mindfulness and the light of attention into all aspects of our experience into all aspects of the moment, directing clarity and mindfulness into our bodies, feelings, mind, mind states, cultivating clear comprehension. Now, as we have talked about on this retreat, you know, we move from the breath into our bodies to see what is taking place, into feelings to see what is taking place. It is, it is practicing the quality of attentiveness that can embrace all aspects of our experience, cultivating clear comprehension, learning to withdraw projections and shoulds and images. And it is directing attention towards body, feelings, mind, mind states, because this is where we can see, to allow these to be mirrors, because this is where we can see the movement of clinging, the movement of holding, the movement of becoming entangled most clearly. You know, we don't give attention to the body in order to make the body into something different or give attention to feelings in order to make feelings into something different or give attention to the mind in order to have a certain kind of mind. No, we give attention to these aspects of our experience because they act as a mirror for us. And because the very movement of self and entanglement and holding actually finds its resting place most clearly and most visibly to us in relation to body, feeling, thoughts, mind states. So we bring the light of attentiveness into these 
airy dimensions of our experience as a way of understanding the means of dissolving clinging and holding and belief systems or it's a means of understanding what it means to dissolve entanglement. I think it is very important to hold our practice in that light that it is not necessarily just an exploration of our body or just an exploration of feelings or thoughts, but allowing them to be mirrors for us of our processes, our inner processes of resistance and holding and learning how to be free, learning actually how to be free in the moment. The areas of most stickiness in our lives, so the where areas where we see stickiness happening most clearly, are in those areas, of course, which we see as being most personal to us. You know, our self-images, our belief systems, our areas of contractedness. You know, we don't get contracted around somebody else's body. It is, you know, our, all of this takes place in relationship. Well, sometimes we get contracted around somebody else's body. <laughs> but mostly our self-images, our belief systems, our areas of contractedness take place in relationship to that which conceive as being me, that which we conceive as being I. This is where we construct the notions of I am, and which of course in itself is a contraction. It is a separation. We see the stickiness that can arise in relationship to body, to feelings, and to thoughts. We've encouraged you in the retreat so far to give attention to your body when there is contractedness there, to see what contractedness is, to see what holding is, to learn actually you don't have to do something special. You know, you bring clear and conscious and, and kind attentiveness to contractedness, and it dissolves. It's not like you need a special technique. Attentiveness is extraordinarily powerful. Clear attentiveness is extraordinarily powerful. Another area of stickiness tends to be around feelings. Again, here we see how there can be contractedness and expansiveness. And really seeing when we approach contractedness, with a willingness to see, with a sense of balance in the dimension of feelings, they open. They open. There is not so much a sense of being entangled. The other area of stickiness that arises very strongly, of course, as many of you have experienced over these days here, is in relationship to thinking. Now, apparently, the average person has 12,637 thoughts a day. You might think of this as being actually very good news. You might think, well, I'm really an above-average person, you know. <laughs> Even if we were an average person and had only 12,637 thoughts a day, if we really look into the nature of much of our thinking that we become very stuck in, you know, we could probably do just leave 37 and drop the other 12,600 and get by just fine in our lives, you know. There is so much thinking that is habitual, that is unnecessary, that is just proliferation, that is just obsessiveness, at times that is just habit. And it is not a mind of friendliness. We see that, how... 
you know, obsessive thinking or just dwelling in thought is so eroding of energy, is so exhausting and depleting. And it is a mind-created world, you know, often very, very different from a world of actuality. It is often thinking about what is happening rather than knowing from the heart and with a great sense of immediacy of being touched, of response, of being really present. Now our practice is not to get rid of thought but actually to cultivate a mind of friendliness where thought is actually of service you know, where thought is actually a part of our experience that is an expression of clarity, an expression of immediacy, sometimes as a way of articulating um, responsiveness. It is cultivating a mind of friendliness where we are not overwhelmed, but where we are actually seeing that mind is simply one part of our experience. And Narayan and I were talking last night about what good news it was for us when we first heard in Dharma teaching that the mind is a sense door. You know, that just like the ear has sounds and the nose has smells and the body has sensations, well, the mind in Buddhist teaching is another sense door in which the sense impressions are thoughts, memories, images, ideas... Um, that arise and pass like any other phenomena. Um, This is a very liberating perspective. It's an incredibly liberating perspective because, you know, we have such an inclination to take our minds so deeply personally. You know, when we, you know, listen to, you know, a car in the driveway, we're happy to let the car be the car, you know. But when we have a thought, you know, We're not happy to let the thought be the thought. When we hear a car in the driveway, we don't say, I am the car, you know. (laughs) But what happens with a thought? We say, oh, I'm this, you know. This is an area where clinging and holding arises so very, very strongly. Um, There are different levels of phenomena that arise in this sense or in the mind, of the mind. Some of this phenomena is simply random, you know, these little scattered impressions from our far distant past. Um, Some of the thinking that arises is simply habitual, you know, we just have come to be in a position of thinking about thinking about the world, thinking about everything. Um, some of the thinking that we experience is entertainment value, simply entertainment value, especially in relationship to uh, a sensation or a feeling we don't like, you know, or, or in relationship to the neutral. Oh, well, here's something I could think about, you know. And it really offers, it seems, a sense of identity, a sense of being in control, a sense of, you know, being in charge or having a direction. Some thinking is insightful or reflective, creative thinking. It is really sometimes helpful to have the clarity of comprehension to discern, actually, as we would in our bodies or feelings, to discern actually what is taking place, equally to discern that within the mind. 
you know, the nature of the thought. Because clearly, you know, there is a tremendous lesson to be learned about letting go in the realm of the mind. Um, so that we don't live in a way in which our minds are governing our lives. Or, because often when our mind is governing our lives, we are really saying that our past is governing our lives. You know, because so many of our concepts and associations and labels are so burdened by what we have seen before, what we have thought before, what we have heard before. And in a way, it is so very, very separating. And I mean, you may have noticed, you know, you go for a walk outside and the mind seems so called upon to um, define the world in every moment, you know. Oh, it's a nice tree, you know, or they should have put the flower bed over there, or, you know, oh, that squirrel is really cute, you know, as if this world is here somehow demanding our concepts in every moment. Of course the world doesn't demand our concepts, doesn't even invite them. And yet somehow this commentary that goes on through our lives, so, you know, and where the mind has something to say about everything. And so many of those concepts are actually so much carrying our associations from the past, really not allowing us actually to see anew, not allowing us to see freshly, not allowing us to see a bigger picture, instead always wanting to put the present in the context of what we know and have known in the context of what is familiar to us. But in a way we deprive ourselves of that immediacy and that sense of freshness. So there is a great skillfulness of learning how to be very careful within the mind, not trying to get rid of thought, not judging it, not rejecting it, but learning more and more to learn to rest actually in immediacy of seeing, to come back to um, just seeing, just listening, just feeling, just touching. And more and more, you know, the mind loses its interest, actually. This is one of the organic effects of meditation, is the mind loses its interest in busyness. It loses interest in, you know, if you think about the fuel for obsession and busyness and entertainment value, I mean, they seem to be serving a purpose, you know. They seem to be offering us something in terms of, you know, something to do or some way of being interested or being excited. But quite honestly, the more that we deepen in practice and learn to really open to a deep sense of inner contentment and well-being and happiness, it's like the mind just loses interest. It loses the habit of dwelling. Because it's, you know, it's like the difference between somebody offering you, you know, a bucket of mud and a gourmet feast for lunch. I mean, you might eat the bucket of mud once. There's something to learn there, I'm sure. But, you know, you probably wouldn't like to adopt it as a life practice. You know, it is far more action. Lovely to rest within that sense of well-being. And this is a very organic effect of the practice. So the mind simply loses its interest through the discovery, loses its interest in obsessive thinking, through the discovery of inner calmness, inner contentment of resting and inner peace. In relationship to thinking, sometimes letting go is actually very appropriate. 
Letting go can happen in many different ways. You can see when you do feel very balanced and calm within your practice, that letting go can sometimes just seem, it is without effort. It is just easeful. It is like thoughts and impressions are not really grabbing hold anywhere. They're not sticking. They're making no impression. There's that sense that these thoughts, just like everything else in our other sense doors, are simply moving through the consciousness. Sometimes letting go happens also through insight. You know, we see we have these very familiar journeys, perhaps, that we make in our minds. You know, the journeys of judgment, the journeys of planning, the journeys of anxiety, the journeys of, of, of dwelling. We can see, you know, the mind doesn't actually, it's not that creative. You know, it has some very familiar journeys that it makes. And there can come to be the real understanding that some of these journeys are in themselves suffering. They just are suffering. And there can come the understanding that actually in some of those journeys we have learned what we need to learn. You know, like maybe we've done obsession in it. It's not going to produce anything more. I mean, we know it's, it's done, you know. Or maybe we, you know, we've done the path of judgment. You know, we've made it a lifetime practice maybe. And then, you know, we suddenly understand, oh, you know, there's nothing offered there that this is actually suffering. This is not something actually I really need to continue with. It is, not, it is not a place of learning. It is not a place of enrichment. You know, perhaps we've done the journey of anxiety for many years, you know, our planning, and actually come to see in the moment, ah, I know this. You know, I know this well. And to perpetuate it, or is actually to consent to suffering. And then sometimes that, that very understanding means that, you know, there is that, that dropping away of inclination, no longer the willingness to engage in that which actually brings conflict or unease. And that is the place also sometimes, but there can be so much habit within those journeys. And sometimes there is really a place for clear intention, you know, and clear, clear resolve of really having the commitment to non-dwelling, that letting go happens through that commitment to non-dwelling, not out of rejection, not out of suppression, but out of understanding and out of compassion for ourselves, that non-dwelling is a profound gift of compassion for ourselves. Okay, so in the beginning of the sitting, just again settling into our bodies, settling into our posture and into this moment. Being calm and easeful within your body, within the present, bringing a soft and clear attentiveness to rest within your breathing. Just breathing in with sensitivity and breathing out with sensitivity. Bringing an equality of attentiveness 
knowing those moments when we are not with the breath, knowing clearly where we are, where the attention is, and cultivating non-dwelling in all things, in all moments. <laughs> 